Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode in my podcast series, Did It Anyway. Uh, as always, I'm excited to be able to bring another story uh, to you, to be able to share someone else's journey that they've had and how they've been able to overcome really challenging things, really um, uh, hard things to work through and have come out the other side super positive. Um, and this uh, special guest that we've got on certainly fits into that category. And once again, I've had a few of these. I'm, I'm speaking to someone in the United States all the way from Australia. Um, and it was a lady um, that we met um, just last year, um, which was a, a really cool thing. We met her, uh, I think it was Thanksgiving event at somebody's house here in Australia, another American family's house here in Australia. And we were able to strike up a great discussion and now a great friendship. And I'm really grateful that she's taken the time to uh, talk with us today. Um, and so I'd like to introduce everyone to uh, Beck Nell. She is on the phone from Utah in the United States um, and she's going to share a pretty incredible story um, with us today of just overcoming um, a really uh, horrible situation, not something that I would want to experience, that's for sure, um, but showed, has showed an enormous amount of courage. And so I just, uh, I'll hand over to Beck and she can just maybe introduce, if you can, Beck, just introduce where you're from and, um, and a little bit about yourself. Hey, everyone. I'm Beck. I'm from Utah, as Baron said. Um, and uh, I am, oh, something about me. I moved to Australia and loved it. Now I'm back in the States, a little bummed about that because it's cold here, freezing cold. Um, but I'm excited to be with you guys and just kind of tell you my story about a head injury I had a couple of years ago. Awesome. And and we met Beck, interestingly enough, we met Beck while she was living here and she was supposed to live here for a couple of years, but due to some visa things with her work situation, it didn't, it didn't play out like that. And uh, she actually went back after how many months, three or four months. Is that right, Beck? How long was I there? Yeah, I was in Australia for six months six and then months. I've been home for two months. So we were a bit sad when she left. We just got to know her and then all of a sudden she <laughs> had to move back. But uh, <laughs> I'm grateful for able, being able to meet her because I think she, uh, she brought a, a great smile and a great personality into our home. Her story is, is quite incredible. And if you looked at her um, when you first met her, you would never imagine that she's been through what she's been through. And, and so I'm going to let Beck tell that story a little bit because I guess the main part of the story starts back in 2015 um, when Beck was actually um, going out on a, on a blind date, I think it was. And so could you take us back to, I guess, what happened that day, Beck, March 28, 2015? Yes, yeah, so I was going on a blind date um, and I wasn't actually wanting to go on this date, but it was my best friend's boyfriend's cousin. So I agreed and I said, fine, I'd go. And it was up in the mountains. Um, and since it was in March, it was still a little bit snowy in Utah around that time. And so we had to roll it in to the, their cabin because we were just going to have like a day at the cabin, go four wheeling, um, probably like do some snowshoeing, just fun stuff in the snow. Um, when we got up to the cabin, they were showing me some cool remodels that they had done and some like new toys, I guess you could say they had. And one of those uh, was a zip line. And they, it was a homemade zip line, and they were so proud of it. They thought it was so cool, and they wanted me to do it. And so it was a really long, a hundred feet long zip line, and it was a gravel 
for the first half and then like a pond from the second half. But since it was snowy, some of it was covered with snow. So they're like, oh, it's safe. Like, no worries. Everyone will be good. So they all went and then it was my turn. I was the last one to go. And when I went, you kind of have to, for you to go in the zip line, you have to run down a hill, a pretty steep hill, and then there's a platform. And then you jump on the platform, and then it's like a 12-foot drop, three-and-a-half meter, I think, and 12-meter drop. And, <laughs> and so when it was my turn to go, I ran, and I jumped on the plat- off the platform, but my shoelace got caught on a bush. And it pulled me down. And but the zip line was bouncy and strong, so it shot me kind of forward. Um, but we didn't have a harness or helmet or anything like that. And so the handlebars actually flew out of my hand. So I was just in the air. Um, and so I fell 12 feet down, three and a half meters, um, head first, and I landed on a rock. Um, and the guys that I was on the date with and my friends date, um, they still were actually with on my side of the zip line walking back and they saw the whole thing happen and they said that I like seized after I hit my head and then I was unconscious like they're trying to wake me up and I wouldn't wake up and they were kind of nervous and but they didn't want to do anything because they were kind of you know they'd injure me or whatnot so they helped me get up um and they walked me oh eventually I woke up and they helped me get up walked me to the cabin and that was all kind of a blur. Like, my memory was kind of blurry at that moment. And I remember, though, waking up in the cabin and staring at them, kind of like, what's going on? My head was hurting. I had a massive bruise on my head. And I kept, like, asking questions to see if I was all right, you know, make sure I knew who I was, what the date was, what we were doing. Um, but because of how I was kind of acting and in and out of consciousness, my friend was super worried and she was like, we need to take her to the hospital. And so they, um, since we four-wheeled in, we had the four-wheeler out back to the car. So it wasn't like so you they, put into the back of a car. You had to ride a four-wheel back out with your head in all sorts of problems. Yes, exactly. And so it's kind of funny because I can even remember like when we were leaving, I couldn't even remember if I had my shoes on and I was asking them all these questions. So they were super worried. So it's like, oh, we really got to help her, you know, get back to the car. And so they sandwiched me in between two people um, on the four-wheeler and kind of to make sure that I wouldn't fall off the four-wheeler or hurt my head too much more because I had a massive bruise on the back of my head on the right side. Um, and then the four-wheeler ride was like 45 minutes and I just threw up. The whole time, I was just like so out of it and throwing up, feeling gross and feeling awful that I was throwing up all over my friend. Um, but they were all cool about it because I just want to make sure I got to the car okay. And then we get to the truck and it's another two-hour drive from there because we're up in the mountains um, to the hospital. So we're driving in the car for those two hours and they're still asking me questions, trying to get phone numbers of my family to, you know, let people know what's going on. Um, And there's a point where I kind of went out of consciousness and I didn't realize I was out of consciousness for 15 minutes, but I I was. And my friend kind of like splashed water on me and that kind of woke me up and she was just yelling at me and like, you can't fall asleep, like you need to stay awake, like you were gone for 15 minutes. So that kind of woke me up like, whoa, I need to stay awake. So for the rest of the ride, probably like maybe 45 minutes to an hour left of the drive, I made sure that I stayed awake 
um, even though I was in so much pain and it was so uncomfortable. And I just wanted to like close my eyes because if I closed my eyes, the pain went away. But I kept trying to stay awake, so that wouldn't happen. Um, we get to the hospital, the ER. So this is about my friend. Would this be about three hours now after you've had the injury that you've had to try and stay awake, riding on a four wheeler, riding in the car, all the way to the hospital? Is that right? Yeah, I actually get that because the four wheeler was forty five. Yeah, so it was a really long drive <laughs> to yeah, the hospital. To, you know, see what's going on. Um, so my friend's boyfriend carried me in to the ER. There's a massive line of people waiting. Um, but luckily, my friend explained everything that was going on. Um, she was actually going into nursing. And so she said a few details about things um, that helped us get in. And so they got me right in. And I remember when the nurse, I mean, hooked me up to the IV. She was like, you're safe. You can go to sleep now. And I remember I passed out because I was like, oh, okay. And then after I passed out and I was, you know, out of, like feeling good, I wake up every now and then and I hear the nurses saying, oh, this is bad. This is so bad. She's lucky if she gets out in six months, like, oh, this poor girl. And But no one had told me what had happened. I was really confused, hooked up to an IV um, on the hospital table with like a neck brace on. But not, no one was telling me what was going on. But I, every time I tried to talk, I couldn't. For some reason, my voice wasn't really working. Um, and I see my date, who was a blind date, so I didn't know him, really. I just met him and then my friend's boyfriend at the corner of the room. And I was like, this is weird. So I close my eyes and I go back to sleep because it felt like a nightmare. And I didn't like what I was hearing. So at that, um, point, at that point, Beck, you mentioned that you had, um, that you're looking at, um, these two guys at the end of the bed. But I think you, you mentioned prior to us talking now that you actually didn't remember who they were at points. Is that right? And that was a bit weird. Yeah. So I couldn't remember who they were. And that was really weird to me to have these two guys in my room while I'm just sitting on this bed, kind of vulnerable with just the sheet over me because I cut all my clothes off and I was just like waiting to go into surgery but I didn't know that at the time that I was going into surgery I just knew I was in the hospital and I was in pain and I was confused I was like what and hearing the nurses say horror stories about me and what will happen to me yeah. so every time I would wake up I would try to go back to sleep so I wouldn't have to experience those little moments yeah, those horrible moments of the nurses telling you that you're going to be in hospital for months and months and and all the bad things that they've seen this happen on other people. Um, so you went in, you obviously went in and had surgery on your head. Could you just tell us just briefly what, what they, what had happened to your head and what they actually did to your head while you're under? Yeah. So um, when they did some CAT scans and MRIs, they found out that I had fractured my skull and on my right side. Um, and then they had internal bleeding um from the fall and so when i hit my head i fractured the skull and caused a puncture that had caused bleeding um in my head um and so when they went in so that they found that out from all the cat scans and mri some time had gone by probably to put the surgery and whatnot so a couple hours later um i go in for surgery and i guess when they went into surgery expecting just to probably fix the crack and snickle and get rid of some of the blood um they found out that my the 
internal bleeding had turned into a blood clot. So I had a blood clot wrapped around uh, my brain and they had to remove it. So they had to break my skull open even more um, and they had to break or cut open all the muscles and stuff on the right side of my face so that they could get in and remove that blood clot. Um, So that's what they did in the surgery. They removed the blood clot and then they put a metal plate and four screws in my head that I will have forever, actually, the plate and screws. And then they sewed the muscles back together on on the right side of my face. And so then when I woke up, it was... um, I had no idea that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, because and, so and your surgery was how long? Um, it was, I feel like saying it was 12 hours because it was supposed to be like four hours. I remember them saying, oh, this is easy. Don't worry. It'll be so fast. But I remember when they came back, they said it took eight hours more. So it's like eight plus wow. four is 12. <laughs> well, they pretty much, they took your whole head apart and then reconstructed it. So clearly a fair bit of work went on. Um, and I remember you said to me that when you woke up, you were just, you felt pain. As soon as you woke up, you just felt pain sitting in the hospital. Yeah. So I had constant pain, immediate pain when I woke up. Um, and there was just a little bit of sliver of lights, um, that were coming into my room from the other hospital section office. And that hurt, like that stung my eyes and it was so painful immediate pain to like my whole right side of my body and just like everything just tingled like sharp little needles like pricking me all over and my head was just throbbing um and I remember my brothers were there um my parents were actually out of town when this all happened and they were trying to crack jokes and help um and so when I'd laugh it kind of hurt though because it felt like when I went, you go to the dentist and your face is numb and I couldn't really smile and yeah. not kind of worried me. So I was like, why can't I smile? And it was like, every time they tried to make it a good thing, I found a bad thing out about myself. <laughs> yeah. So you're, they're trying to, they're trying to lift you up and then you realize that when you start laughing, Oh no, my face doesn't work properly or my, my arm hurts or my head hurts. Wow. Yeah. Everything's tingling. Everything's different. What is going on? Sometimes we think we're helping when we're trying to crack jokes and really we're not. <laughs> yeah. Lots but of so, fun. So, so this is, so after, so you've had this experience and you've had huge operation on your brain. Uh, I remember you actually said uh, to me earlier on that they, you said, please don't shave off all my hair. And you were pretty happy because they didn't shave off all your hair, just one section, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Yes. <laughs> that was my biggest concern. That was your vain moment. You didn't want to feel vain. Yeah, my vainest moment was that's what I asked my brother. Is what I said, they were bald and they thought it was funny. And they made a joke about me being bald because all I could feel was the wrap. But then they took a picture and showed me I wasn't bald and then I still had a lot of hair left. <laughs> now, something that was really interesting um, was that when the, when the, you came out of surgery and you were at a point now where you can actually um, speak to the doctors properly. And, and so a little bit of time had passed, I guess, and maybe a day or two, I'm not sure. Um, the, the surgeon gave you a prognosis of how long you might be in hospital. Could you tell us what the surgeon said? Yeah. So he said I would be in the ICU for potentially, um, one to two, maybe even three months. And then depending on how well I was healing um and then after that i would still be in the hospital like normal hospital room for an extra couple of months so potentially six to seven months altogether. 
in the hospital. In the hospital. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, what I was a bit blown away with, how long did you actually stay in hospital? So I was in the hospital, including the ICU, for only four days. Wow. So one day, in, uh, three days in ICU and one day in general ward in the hospital mm-hmm. and, then, and then you went home, um, which is a... F- which you mentioned that the surgeon was stunned um, and clearly you recovered significantly faster than expected, at least with the drainage of the blood and all those things that, that needed to happen. Um, there was obviously some other stuff that we're going to talk about that didn't heal straight away. Um, but you, were, I imagine you were pretty shocked at that point coming home so quickly. Yeah. So I, especially from when the nurses had said those things before the surgery, yeah. And what the surgeon had actually said himself, I was expecting, like mentally I prepared myself that I was going to be there for a long time. Um, so at first, when they told me that I was good to go, I kind of doubted that. And I was like, are you sure? Like, am I really allowed to go? Like, are we okay to leave? Like, I'm a little scared to leave. Like, am I going to die at home? Like, I was like really <laughs> scared because of all the horror stories I heard. I was like, this is too amazing to be like to be true. Like, I don't think I should be going home. Like, I was actually scared to do it. You mentioned some of the horror stories. You said that the nurses said a bunch of things while you were sort of half awake, half asleep. What were some of the things that you can remember that they said that were so bad? Um, so they would say like, oh, she's so young and she's so beautiful. I can't believe this ha- is happening to her. Like she's not going to have the same life that she had. She won't be able to do a lot. And oh, bless her, that poor thing. I hope her memory still intact. And Oh, I hope she can still do the things that she loves because this is going to be a really long process, a really long healing experience. And I still hadn't known what was going on. So I'm like, process, healing experience, what happened to me? I'd like look on my hands and my toes. I'm like, I can feel my toes. I think I can feel my toes. <laughs> so you were, you were at that point going, clearly this is not good. No one's told me anything. Um, and then you know, that's going through your head where, when the surgeon's speaking to you after the surgery saying, you're going to be here for, you know, two or three months in the ICU, another three or four months in the general ward before you can go home. That must have been pretty scary, but then, bang, you go home in, in four days and, and you're home. So clearly, as, as you mentioned, that was not just a shock, but it was scary to you as well to go home because you might die at home, as mm-hmm. you mentioned. Um, but that wasn't the end of the journey, I guess, was it really? I think... You mentioned to me that it wasn't just the physical challenges, which we will speak a little bit more on in just a second, but it, some other challenges happened um, from an a emotional, a mental perspective when you got home. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the months after you got back? Yeah, so when I first had gotten home, I, my short-term memory, I lost a lot of that, um, and so I couldn't remember things. And um, so when people would tell me certain stuff, I'd they have to repeat it, or I would repeat stories that I didn't know I'd already told. Um, and a lot sometimes people were patient about it, but other times they weren't because I looked completely normal. Um, and so they'd expect me to be right where I was. Um, but it was hard because my um, hearing was also gone. I lost my hearing in my left ear for a couple months, so I'd have to make people repeat stuff to me. Um, and then if they told me things, I'd actually forget what they told me anyway. <laughs> and yeah. so they get even more frustrated. Um, but I also had a lot of, um, I guess you'd say, doubts, self-doubts, and personality changes, and um, hobbies and interests. Like, all of that changed. 
and soon after I got home, especially when I finally went and slept in my room because I slept upstairs for a while because I couldn't go down the stairs for a bit, um, seeing my room for the first time and kind of the way I had decorated it, um, some of the pictures, the music I'd listened to, the books I'd read, the clothes that I had, it was just, I kind of didn't like that anymore. I looked at it and I was kind of like, what? I liked that? Like, for some reason, there was a part of me that changed um, that I didn't think would. And I then I got frustrated, too, that I didn't recognize this person who I worked really hard to become um, anymore. And I didn't feel like I was that person anymore. And so there's just a lot of confusion and a lot of self-doubt of who I was and kind of like who I was before and also who I currently was at that moment. Like I felt uh, very lost and broken. Yeah. And broken on the inside that nobody could see. And that, that, that was interesting that you said, you said people couldn't see that I was sick. And so they might get frustrated with me, but I felt broken on the inside. Um, and you mentioned that the, something that I wanted to ask you about, you, you mentioned to me before that you had a crooked smile and obviously because of the muscles um, being you know severed and then reattached on your face, did, did, the, did your look or your appearance um, make you feel anxious or nervous or embarrassed or did that, um, I mean, because I don't see that now. I mean, I just see a beautiful woman. I would never have known that you've, <laughs> that you've had an accident like that, but maybe just after. Was that, was that a concern for you? Yeah, I would say it was more so because um, it hurt. It was like one of those... Um, I'm actually not ever had this experience, but from what I've heard, when people do muscle pains or like knee surgeries and, you know, you have to like flex the muscles and you have to do stuff to strengthen, and I guess, even loosen those muscles up. That's kind of what I had to do with my face yeah. um, is I had to do face exercises and I had to try to open my mouth really wide and I couldn't do it and I couldn't eat certain things. And I remember being so frustrated because if I had to laugh, it would hurt because my those muscles were so tight and so I'd have to like learn to smile and so I'd over smile so my face wasn't just like a crooked smile but it was like a weird funky like I, I don't, like it looked like I had something in my cheeks because I was trying so hard to like use those muscles and so I was constantly afraid of what people were thinking and luckily a lot of people didn't act like they noticed or they were just crying and they didn't say anything but <laughs> I was able to like, overcome that a little bit faster, but it was for sure something that I was very self-conscious about because I, I did love my smile before. And so I was bummed because I felt like it just didn't, I just didn't feel like me, like everything about me was not was there. You, you told me a story before about, about the hot dog and how you, um, with your face not working the way that you wanted it to, you wanted to eat a hot dog because um, you just started back, eating and you couldn't get your mouth around the hot dog is that about right yeah so i finally could eat solid foods and i was so excited and for some reason what i wanted was a hot dog from this place that we have in utah and my dad went and got it for me and i was like stoked and i went to go take a bite and i couldn't even get my mouth over the small half of the hot dog bun um that's how much my mouth would open and i didn't know that because i was eating such small food like applesauce type of things but it didn't I didn't have to open my mouth and so recognizing that just like instant tears I was so depressed <laughs> so couldn't eat the hot dog and it's heartbreaking <laughs> but I think sometimes we don't 
we just don't realize the challenges that are in other people's lives. And I think what was really interesting that you said, people couldn't see that I was broken. People couldn't see that. So you felt broken inside and it was almost like people felt, you felt like people were frustrated with you because you couldn't be the person that you used to be, but you, you felt broken inside. No one could see that. And sometimes we're not aware that people around us um, are broken inside and they're struggling a bit and we're not, because we don't understand what's happened or we, we, we assume they've gone through the healing process and they should be better now that we start to um, expect a certain type of behavior from them. That's probably not, not right. And we need to be more conscious of some of the challenges that they might be going through. And I think yours is a really good example of that. Pick. You mentioned to me that before the accident, you, you saw yourself as really sweet in control, really chilled out, easygoing, you know, nothing really phased you too much. Uh, but then after the accident, you became angry and frustrated. And a lot of it had to do with um, having to receive help to do, you know, normal tasks that you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't uh, need help with, such as going to the bathroom or, or anything like that. So um, can you tell me a bit about sort of the feelings that you had and how that was so different from uh, before your accident? Um, so I think for me, I, being the, I'm the youngest in my family, and so I'm a little more on the independent side of doing things. Um, people joke that the youngest is spoiled and selfish and all those weird things. But also the youngest is independent because everyone grows up and leaves the house, and so you kind of have to grow up yourself. And so I felt like I was independent, and I was proud of who I'd become, and I was just like, wow, I'm doing so good. And so for this to happen, it was hard for me to think like, I have to now ask for help. And then even though I am positive that no one ever said I was a burden or ever said that they did not want to help me, I just felt all of a sudden that I was a burden to them. And I felt like they had to go out of their way to help me. And I would just get super frustrated because I used to be this independent person who could do things on her own, didn't ever have to really ask for help. Um, loved serving, but didn't like getting that service in return, um, just because I just felt weak if I did. Um, and so this whole experience made me, literally, I couldn't do anything on my own at first. And my mom had to really help me with everything. If I needed to go over to the bathroom, I would stand up and just go so thinking I could go by myself and I'd fall because my balance was off. Or if I like looked up too fast, I would get lightheaded. And if I wasn't sitting down I'd fall over because that was too much that was I guess too much movement too fast a lot of motion sickness just by moving my eyes even um and so I think the hardest thing for me was allowing people one asking for help admitting that I needed help and then to actually letting them help me after I asked them to help me yeah. and I'd be like oh actually no I can do it and they'd be like wait what no like let me help you and I'd be like no it's okay I can do it and then it'd be a lot of like me getting frustrated and then confusion as well. Cause they're like, okay, fine, you can do it. But then it was like, but no, actually I do need your help. <laughs> so there's a lot of embarrassing going around in circle moments because I'd need it. I mean, eventually I learned, but it took me a while to really accept help and to know that letting people help me can not just bless me, but can bless them too, instead of it me feeling like a burden. And I think that's kind of what I had to do is, tell myself oh I'm actually helping them by letting them help me 
because that was the only way I'd accept their help. Yeah, I think that is a great point. I'm glad you mentioned that. We we all struggle, I think, with pride and not allowing people to help. Um, and and you clearly needed day-to-day help. And and I know you mentioned that you're getting angry. And I think when our pride wall goes up really high and we're like, no, I can do this myself and I don't want anyone's help, even fully knowing that we need it, um, that's where we can get frustrated and angry. But clearly you switched your mind to being a bit more grateful for the help and seeing the benefits of that help, not just for yourself but for somebody else. Um, and I think that's good advice for anybody that's listening is, you know, we might be in challenging or tough situations and we have to be humble enough to accept that we're, we're not the perfect specimen of human. We have failings and faults and we struggle at times with whatever it is that we struggle with. And someone coming to help doesn't just help us, it helps them as well because they get outside of their own problems and, and we could all do, do better for doing that, I think. Now, um, obviously, this is a really challenging time for you as you try to navigate your healing and recovery process. And um, you mentioned sort of the steps of your recovery. I guess you're upstairs at one point and then you went down to your room and, and then that became a different sort of struggle in, in regards to the, you know, the, that your mind had kind of changed a little bit and you, you had to work through what you liked now and you've forgotten lots of things and your hearing had stopped working. And so all of these things got to a point where you were really struggling um, and I think it was the in, in around 2017 you were really struggling and and became depressed. Um, and what was what was some of the negative thoughts that you had at that point in time? Um, so yeah, with that, I being in my old room and kind of seeing this person that I was, and like and you mentioned that I felt like I had been, you know the top of the top for myself. Like I was very proud of where I had become, what I was doing. I was accomplishing a lot of things in my personal life and I was just like, yeah, this is awesome. And then with the injury, it just kind of took it all away. And then I was sitting in a room that kind of reminded me of that consistently of the things I wasn't. And instead of seeing it in a positive way, all I could see is the things I wasn't. And I kept comparing myself to who I used to be. And so if I wanted to write in my journal, I would go and take out my journal to write in it. And I missed the handwriting that I used to have when I would write. And my handwriting wasn't as cute as I thought it needed to be. Or um, I would want, I was preparing to run a half marathon. And um, there is like some of my old marathon medals in my room and reminding myself that I couldn't do that actually. And that I couldn't even exercise. I couldn't even, I wasn't allowed to lift up my nieces and nephews. And I'm really close to my family. So there's just a lot of little things that I couldn't do. And I was getting so frustrated and I had a lot of pain still in my head and healing. And so I had a lot of medicine that I could take um, during that time to help, you know, with that pain. And so instead of just taking it for pain, I was taking it for, I guess, uh, to numb the lack of progression I felt I had. Um, seeing all these memories of who this person, this wonderful person, I kept thinking, like putting my old me on a pedestal for some reason. And I'm thinking, wow, look at this girl and look how amazing she was. You're nowhere. You're not even close to that. Like you can't even go to the bathroom by yourself. Like you can't even do these things and you're still struggling with stuff. And everyone keeps telling you, oh, you look so great. Like I bet like you're a hundred percent. Right. And then I'm like, wait, what's a hundred percent? Am I a hundred percent? And then everyone telling me I'm okay, but I wasn't feeling okay. 
And so I kept getting frustrated and mad at myself that I wasn't where everyone told me I was supposed to be. And I wasn't where this girl before was. And I was just so frustrated and confused and mad at myself for thinking that I like could ever get there because I wasn't getting there. And so if I ever fell short of one little thing, I'd get mad and I just, you know, negative talk to myself. And it got to a point where I would try to numb it. And I just wanted to, I guess my cover word was sleep. I just wanted to sleep it off. So I take a lot of medicine to help me sleep. Or I would just take the medicine to not help me think. And eventually I started realizing that it wasn't me trying to sleep, but more of me wanting to just end everything, end my life, end the suffering, the pain, the trying to be perfect. So that's what I felt like I needed to be for everybody else because I felt like obviously I was broken and I was the only one who could see that. And so that meant I was wrong instead of realizing that everyone else just didn't know. They just didn't know what was going on, but I didn't see it that way. And so I was really frustrated and angry at myself for all of the pain, I guess I was feeling um, and resentment of myself of who I used to be and who I wasn't. And I recognized that I was going down a dark rabbit hole, I guess you could say. Um, and with the depression I had, instead of knowing how to fight it or get out of it, I just succumbed to it. I was just like, take me. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm ready to give up. I'm done. I don't love this life I live. And I'm just, I kind of felt like a faker too. Like everyone sees me as this thing that I'm not, and I don't know how to be there. And so I'm just, I want to end my life. I'm over it. I'm done. Um, I think you've articulated that really, really well. Can I say, and can I just commend you on your courage to speak about that? Cause that's hard. And you mentioned earlier um, that you were embarrassed and you were embarrassed about the way that you felt you were embarrassed about who you were now. Um, and so to actually talk about where you're at and how it's such a dark place that you're in, it takes a lot of courage. And so I really appreciate you just even, even doing that right now. Um, oh, thank you. But, but something that was um, interesting to me is that you spoke about the comparison that you made to yourself and you felt like you couldn't attain that anymore and that felt made you feel worthless and that you, you because you couldn't measure up, you were sort of good for nothing. And um, I have no doubt that many people feel like that. And that's a huge challenge and a huge issue um, in our society. Um, and it's not just ourselves that we compare ourselves to sometimes we we compare ourselves to other people and and frequently people we, we compare ourselves to other people that are on social media where people are you know putting up their best selves and showing you know the amazing experience they had for the day um not the loads of washing that are piled up in the <laughs> in the laundry where the normal mm-hmm. life happens um and so we we get caught on this thing of comparing ourselves to all the best times or all the good times and you were clearly in that space comparing yourself to all the all the best things you did all the medals that you won all the amazing experiences that you had prior um and then become and then comparing that to your lowest self that you felt right at that point in time and i think that's really challenging and dangerous situation that many people find themselves in Um, but you did something um, that I would encourage everybody to do who feels in this way is you you actually started to talk to people later on Um, now this the reason you started talking to people though wasn't 
just you woke up one day and I'm going to talk to people. Somebody, particularly your dad and your brother, helped you through that process. Could you share that experience um, about how it finally came out from you having suicidal thoughts and feeling in a really horrible place that you couldn't get out of and what they did to help you shift? Yeah, so exactly that is I was so like I knew that where I was was not a good place and I didn't want to be there anymore and I didn't really know how to get out of it but I did know that I trusted my dad with everything um, and so we were at and this is actually what also helped me realize that I wasn't in a good place where it was a family gathering family dinner and all my siblings happened to be in town and all their kids were there and everyone's so happy and having a good time and laughing and just like one of those like happy ordinary days of just fun with your family and I just couldn't feel anything I literally felt numb I didn't feel any happiness I didn't feel any sadness I just felt numb and I kept like a thought kept coming into my mind like just go downstairs go away from everyone like this is giving you a headache or just like all these weird negative like kind of icky thoughts to be honest were coming into my mind and I'm kind of thinking what why like I'm with my family I'm happy I should be happy I'm happy right and I wasn't and I just felt this uneasy like those just suicidal thoughts and just confusion and just it was this cloud over my head and I was sitting next to my dad and I wanted to talk to him so bad like I just felt like this is need to talk to him, but I couldn't because everyone was around us and all the joys and the giggles and the laughter. And I was just like, this is a little scary dark cloud in the room. And so I instead decided to text him. And so I pulled out my phone and I texted my dad and I was really scared and I didn't want him to think that I was trying to get attention or that I was making anything up, but I just didn't know how to really say it. And so I probably even could look up the text but I think I pretty much just said dad I need your help I'm feeling these really dark scary things and I don't know how to handle it and so then him and I were having a conversation through text right next to each other sitting right next to each other with everyone still cracking jokes and laughing and my dad would still you know comment be a part of the conversation I was just sitting there on my phone um texting him so I mean they might have noticed but everyone seemed to ignore me that was fine and so we were having this conversation through text and I was starting to feel a little bit better and I was just waiting for everyone in my family to leave so that my dad and I could really talk about things and then eventually throughout the night all of my siblings leave but my oldest brother and his wife and I was kind of confused I was like why are they still here like come on leave I won't talk to my dad like just praying that they go away yeah. and then they finally my brother's like so what's going on and I like looked at him and I was like what and he was like dad told me you needed to tell us something and I remember I was livid and I looked at my dad and I was like what I have nothing to say and my dad was like Becca I think you'd actually be surprised at what your brother has to say and I was like uh no I don't think so. I don't think you know anything. And then all of a sudden I'm mad at him and I'm not happy with anything he's saying. And my brother's like, whoa, what's going on? What, what do you mean? He's like, okay. And then you could tell he was worried because he could see I was upset. And uh, my dad was like, I think you would be surprised. You should talk to them. And so I said, if you think I should talk, if you think they need to know, you tell them. And then I started to cry. So then my dad started to tell them that I had suicidal thoughts and that I uh, was wanting to act on them 
and I was scared and I didn't know what to do. And I'm just sitting on the couch crying because my friend said I was so embarrassed. I didn't want anyone to know. I felt so weak and I felt even more broken that um, all the things that people were telling me I was okay and I'm admitting and telling everyone, more of my dad, but I feel like everyone, that I wasn't okay and I had these issues and I wasn't strong enough to overcome these issues on my own is how I felt. And so for him to be telling my brother and sister-in-law this, and my mom, because my mom was in the room too, um, just made me feel so small. But I was pleasantly um, surprised that my oldest brother, who I had always looked up to my whole life, who was a big guy, he's six five, six four, five, I mean, he's really tall, um, comes and sits next to me on the couch, picks me up, and he's just holding me up. I'm crying, and he just tells me how much he understands. And that he actually understands more than I would know because he had experienced similar things to me. Um, and I'm just crying and he's just holding me. And that was the first time that I had felt like I wasn't alone. And that even though I might have been feeling broken, that I, I wasn't expected to be anything but myself at that moment. Because that's kind of how I'd been feeling is that I had to be what everyone else was thinking I was. And that's where the confusion and the depression and the suicide came from is that I was trying to be someone and I wasn't and I wasn't allowing my actual thoughts to be real. And so it was just a whole bunch of confusion. Uh, and that you mentioned to me, Beck, that um, a pretty courageous thing, I think, by your dad, by the way, um, to, to yeah, do that. Right. Because <laughs> um, that would be, that would have been hard for him. I have no doubt that would have been really tough knowing that that was about to be a confrontational situation with his daughter who is already having pretty scary thoughts. Um, but that that obviously that moment helped you to start thinking differently and moving down a different path in your life. Um, Cause I don't see um, anything like that um, from my experiences with you. And so um, how, where did that, what, what, what did your path look like after that, after that moment where you realized that somebody else um, has felt the same type of broken that you felt? Um, I think it helped, really what helped me is that it was somebody that I looked up to, like somebody that my whole life I'd put him on a pedestal. Um, and then to know that he'd actually gone through things just as hard as me, it was scary and real, you know, that somebody can die and how fast life can be taken by an instant thought and to be grateful that he didn't do that um, and that I could learn from him and that gave me hope to know that all the great things he had accomplished in his life from being like having a family and having a successful career and just being a great brother. Like to me, that helped me know that I wasn't ready to give up and I wasn't I actually wanted to be more than I really could be. And I think something too that helped is that I have a lot of nieces and nephews and my brother said um, at the time, he was like, Lily would be so sad if you killed yourself. Nora would be so sad if you killed yourself. And for me, that like hit me because I didn't even think about my nieces and nephews. I didn't think about really how anyone else would feel because in that moment with depression and suicide, it is very much a selfish thing without realizing it's selfish because you're in such a dark place. It's not like you're trying to be selfish per se, yeah. but it is a very selfish thing. And so 
having him kind of, and he never said you're selfish, but having him say things in that way reminded me that I have a, more to live for than I realized that I didn't even, not even one second thought about. Like, I didn't think anyone cared. I didn't think anyone had these moments. I thought everyone wanted me to be this perfect person. And that was frustrating to me because I didn't know how to be there. And so instead of, you know, telling someone something like that, I'd get mad and beat myself up and then spiral down. Yeah. But you, but you've been able to move and I love that insight by the way, but you've been able to move forward from that now so much so that, um, I mean, when I see you, I see a really positive person, someone who has taken hold of the challenge and instead of taking medication to try and make it all go away and hide away from it, you, you, from what I see, you embrace who you are and you're bubbly and effervescent and, um, and so much so that you, you know, you had an opportunity not long after this experience to move to the other side of the world. And what prompted that decision? Yeah, so I think from everything that I'd experienced and shared with my family, and they were awesome and they helped me jump right into therapy. And therapy really taught me different tools on how to, I guess, question those thoughts um, yeah. and help put facts to those thoughts. So if I was thinking something, it would be like, I'm stupid. I was like, well, a lot of facts. Like, are you really stupid? No, you're not. So when all of a sudden it was like, these weird little funny, like I'd start laughing. And it, not that I would think I was a joke, but it helped me understand that those thoughts really had no power over me. And the moment that I realized that the things that I was thinking weren't facts, they weren't actual things that described me or really painted a picture of who I was um, at that time. And it was, I was never that person, if anything. And so knowing those different tools and helping myself grow out of it, it helped me build confidence in knowing that the person that I used to be, I might not ever be again, but it didn't matter because who I'm becoming is even better because I have that power again to trust myself um, and to know that I have, I don't know, potential I guess or that there's something you know exciting life's exciting again and it wasn't as scary and dreadful as it used to be and so then when I got offered because I started working um, for the, the company I work for they offered me a position for Australia and actually at the time um, before that my boss so when I went back to work the boss I had um, I worked with under him for a while and then when my suicidal thoughts started happening and depression and I'm going to therapy, the therapist said, you will need to tell your boss what is happening because if there are days that you can't go into work and because of the thoughts, if your depression gets gets stronger um, and you're not able to go in because of whatever reason, you need to let them know that this is why and they will understand and they will work with you. But if you don't go to work because of this and they don't know why, that will look bad on you. So you need to, you know, be courageous, I guess, and explain what was happening. And I remember I was so scared. And I went to work one day and I had, you know, already emailed my boss and said, hey, can we have a meeting? You're like, like, I just had some medical updates is what I called it. And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. So, and it was really, I have a great job, really relaxed people that I worked with. And so I remember when I went in, and I had to tell him that I was struggling with suicide and depression. I was so scared and I was super shaky. And I was like, oh, 
so like that. I was like gonna cry. I knew it. I was like, I don't want to cry for this man. He's my boss. Blah, blah, blah. Even though we were, he was a great boss, and like I felt like I could still be his friend at work. Like it was a good relationship we had. I was so scared, and I just wanted to still be professional. And yeah. um, and I remember when I told him, I was not professional. I broke down into tears. It was a mess. But it was actually a really beautiful experience, and he was so understanding, and he had actually. Um, had a family member who'd gone through similar things. And so it was actually a really great experience. And so fast forward a little bit, he um, got a different position and moved to Australia for our same company. So he was no longer my boss and I was under a different team. And then fast forward a bit again, some more time with a year, he um, was the one that offered me the position to go to Australia. And so I did have a little bit of doubt. And, but knowing him being my boss, I did ask him and I said, you know where I've been. Do you think I can handle this because of where I've been? And I said, I just, just want to know your thoughts and I want you to be brutally honest with me because we've gone through so much of that time together that we had that relationship. And he said, well, how do you feel? Do you feel like you can do this? And it took me just a little bit of time, like maybe a minute. I was just sitting there silently thinking and I was just like, yeah, actually I do I can do this I do feel really confident about it and he's like well there you go and I have nothing to question and it was like a really empowering moment for me because I have not really ever said that out loud I don't think in a way of giving myself power of who I was like I had like therapy and little exercises there but to saying it to someone and to be saying it to be moving across the world to their side and by myself without really any family um, and only knowing him and his wife and those are the only people I know in the whole country. It was nerve wracking and a little scary. But that moment that I said that I knew I could do it and I felt confident in doing it, it just like, and all of a sudden there was no fear. There was no doubt. And I was just all for it. I love that. That There's so much in that that I want to just break down just for a second before we finish, because there's a few things that you said that I just loved. I love the fact that you, at the end there, you said, I felt courage. And I, 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 at that point, I felt like I could do it. And, it. and this podcast series is called Did It Anyway. And I love that you've gone through this whole big, massive beast of a situation that, you've, that has been hard to endure. And you've been able to go, oh, stuff it. I'm doing it anyway. Let, let's just, I'm just going to go and do it. And I love that confidence and that courage to be able to do that you mentioned before that you were working with a therapist and i think that's fantastic i think it's fantastic that you were able to talk to somebody about it whether that's a therapist or just somebody i think that's so very important to be able to help you to rewrite the story in your mind because you were creating a story in your own mind that just was was not even true and and we, we do that at times. We all do that at times. There'll be people listening here that have done it plenty in their lives, as I have. We, we create this story in our mind with our negativity bias that sits there and, it, and then it becomes a spiralling story of negativity and how, and how we're bad at everything when the reality is it's a lot of rubbish. And you were able to switch that and go, I'm going to create a story of what I can achieve and what I'm going to achieve. And I'm going to go move to Australia because I can, because I can achieve that, because I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, I'm willing enough, I am all of those positive things. You created that. You created that story in your mind. Um, and I love what you said. You said, who am I becoming? I think life is less about who we are right now and who we're striving to become. And I think that's a really 
good thing that you said. And, and we may not be happy with the person that we are right now in our lives, but that's okay because we can change. And I think you've, you, you've been able to share a real, real life example of, hey, I went through a really horrible thing, but you didn't let it define you. And you created the story. After some time, you created the positive story that allows you to go to the next point in your life. And what's really interesting is, I I look at it like this, you changed your view to find your happiness. So the situation, your situation has not changed from, say, six or eight months or 10 months after you had your surgery. Maybe a little less pain. But other than that, I don't think your situation has changed because you're you've still got a plate in your head. You've still got effects of that surgery and that accident um, that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis and a variety of effects that they are. Um, But you've changed how you view it and you've taken control of, instead of running away from it, you've been able to take that control. And I think that, that your experience, Beck, is just a great example for anybody that's listening or anybody in life that um, is, is going through that really tough time um, we choose how we view it. We don't choose the circumstances. And some people's circumstances are just so desperately hard. Um, but we do choose that bit on how we view it. And over time, we can shift our view to find our happiness. And I think, I think you're a great example of that. So I really I want to say a huge thank you, Beck, for, sh- for you sharing your story today. Because for me, it's been really impactful. I have no doubt for other people that have been listening, it's been really impactful as well. So thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. It was a good reminder for myself, actually, too. So thank you so much. Uh, awesome. And for those that are listening um, to the podcast, I, I I love hearing everybody's stories as we share them. And if you've got someone that you know that you think has a story that should be told and can impact other people and help them, um, if you've got a friend who is who really just lives by that mantra of, of doing it anyway, um, I want to talk to them and I want to share their story. And so I encourage everyone to jump on, um, have a listen to the next podcast and subscribe, um, whether it be on iTunes or on your Android device. And I think you can find this podcast pretty much anywhere on Google Podcasts or on my website at barrengrant.com. But check it out and um, love to hear uh, more of your stories and we'll keep them coming. So once again, thanks very much, Beck. Have an awesome day, guys, and talk to you soon.